in the grand scheme of things, it's not that important, right? Because if you if you fail at a company, you know, it feels like the end of the world. But just get up and do your next thing, right? It's and it's it's not that hard to find the next thing. It's much like. It is hard. Like, don't get me wrong. Founding a company, having a good idea, is is freaking hard. But it's it's still easier than like repairing your broken your broken soul. This episode is brought to you by WHU, the Otto Beisheim School of Management. WHU is reshaping the way students learn about business, management, finance, and entrepreneurship through its innovative programs and partnerships in Germany and across the globe. To learn more about this globally ranked university, visit whu.edu today. Hey folks, Garrett here. In this latest episode of the Most Awesome Founder podcast, we welcome Daniel Hahnemann. Entrepreneur, investor, comedian, polyglot, and currently founder CEO of Wundertox. He also happens to be a Vehau alum. Today we're going to be discussing Daniel's founder journey, what it's like being an entrepreneur in multiple countries, how life life outside of work informs life inside of it, and so much more. Coming to you from WHU. On the banks of the Rhine River in beautiful Fallendar, Germany. This is the best and most awesome founder podcast. A show about entrepreneurs, innovators, advisors, and educators, and the stories that make them who they are today. Daniel, welcome to our humble, yet not so humbly named podcast. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me here. Dude, it's always great to grab an alum that's doing cool things and uh, and get them to tell a little bit of their story back to the next generation of uh, aspiring founders yeah. at, at Vehau. You know, it's funny, it seems like it, it comes in waves. You know, when I talk about the alums at Vehau, I kind of talk about these generations. Yeah. And I think you are in a pretty, pretty strong generation of graduates, right? Like you had a lot of founders coming out of that time. Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah. I like a lot of my peers are, are founded pretty successful startups. Um, I'd say. Yeah. yeah. I think there's, it seems to me that there is another generation, you know, a couple of years ago, I started this, uh, yeah. the accelerator at Vehau and, uh, you know, way more applicants than we were able to take this past year. My, uh, my replacement, Max Eckel, is running it now, and mm -hmm. and the ecosystem seems to be flourishing. Be flourishing. Yeah. yeah. So. No, I think our like our accelerator of our generation was was um, Rocket Internet, especially the Delivery Hero, the whole Food Panda thing, and and uh, all these. We call them the the delivery wars, mm -hmm. uh, but also the whole Movinga uh, story. All these hyper growth startups that was that came in our generation, uh, like plus minus two years. I'd say, yeah. Well, that's a good segue into how we start all of our episodes, um, which is a little bit of storytelling. So why don't you kick things off by kind of telling us a little bit about your your journey, your founder journey, mm -hmm. kind of where you come from and, and how you ended up in the, in the seat you're in today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so going way back, <laughs> I think... Um, yeah, I, I was born in uh, Hong Kong. Uh, my dad's German. My mom's from Taiwan. Um, 
spent, yeah, I was born there, spent two years in kindergarten in Germany and dished it off actually, <laughs> but um, spent most of my childhood in Hong Kong, um, studied at the German school, um, did a German international abitur, um, so the high school diploma. So just curiously, just quick interjection, your first language you learned was? Um, my first language was, well, my mother speaks Chinese with me, Mandarin Chinese, like the, the Taiwanese variant. Um, and my dad's always spoke German with me. Uh, and my parents speak English with each other. So like I, I grew up trilingually um, and uh, I'm, I'm super grateful that my parents were so disciplined in, in speaking their mother tongues because growing up in an international environment, I know people that had the potential to learn five languages but ended up speaking one. <laughs> Mostly English, obviously. <laughs> yeah, well, I was just curious because you speak almost with like an American or a Canadian accent. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I get that a lot. <laughs> it's, uh, it's the international school yeah. uh, accent, I'd say. Because so, so like my spelling and writing is just completely British because that's how I learned it from the get-go. But, you know, like cultural, cultural, uh, uh, the cultural soft power mm -hmm. of America is very effective. <laughs> Well, I won't blame you if you want to put a U after your O's. That's, that's okay. Cool. So, Hong Kong. Yeah. Uh, graduated. Um, how I got to VHU was actually pretty simple. I looked up uh, the best business universities uh, uh, in the German-speaking world, uh, applied to Mannheim, St. Gallen, um, and VHU. Um, actually, for Zankayan, because I was in Hong Kong, I did the GMAT with 17. <laughs> um, so I got a place at, at Zankayan, but I really uh, enjoyed the process of, of getting into Vihau and um, uh, yeah, took the place, took the spot when it was offered to me. Uh, didn't get into Mannheim, but you know, wouldn't have gone anyways. Uh, Vihau was my first choice, really happy about that. Um, and then, yeah, I moved to Germany when I was 17. Uh, I really had a, like, going from 8 million people to 8,000 people was, was kind of tough. I had a bit of a culture shock at the beginning. Um, I, uh, I mean, I, I knew Germany. Like, I was there every, literally every summer and, and uh, spent a bit of time in Germany before, like, starting at Behavu, but it was kind of a culture shock. So I, uh, I was very not used to, you know, just small village life, right? Coupled with the stress of, of studies and everything. Yeah, and you're you're young. Um, I was 17 when I when I moved. Yeah. Crazy. And and you came from, you know, one of the most bustling metropolises in the world to a tiny little yeah. village on the Rhine. But you also probably didn't look like everyone else there. I know like Vehu has made a big push towards diversity. Yeah. I think it's an ongoing battle, but you know, were you, did you feel like you instantly fit in? No, no. So like, I mean, the thing is, um, like I, looking back, I don't blame the people. Like a lot of them, like, you know, grew up in villages on the countryside of Germany. And like I had, and I would say most of the questions I got were innocent, but you know, like having to answer for the fifth time that I, I've never eaten dog does kind of get like taxing and you're yeah. just, you know, like in those young years, you're just also asking yourself, coupled with the stress of studying and the new environment and everything, not having your parents around, um, like, you know, you do kind of start questioning, like, why aren't these guys like accepting me? I, I thought that would, this would be different, right? <laughs> but, um, I mean, I, I made some good friends. Um, it's funny because like a lot of them have some international connection or, or, or like, you know, 
ch uh, like kids of immigrants. Um, but yeah, no, there were incidents. Yeah, there were incidents at Behawu. And I actually joined the panel discussion last week at the Diversity Weeks oh, nice. at Behawu. Uh, talked a bit about my experience there. And I, like, I mean, diverse, diversity matters. That's, that's definitely a case. Uh, if I can tell you, like, <laughs> if I could tell you my experiences, absolutely diversity does matter. Uh, I'm super grateful for, like, you know, Behawu doing a positive push, not just, like, the university, but also um, also like student initiatives and stuff. Yeah. yeah. I think, I, I think it's important that people understand when, when we talk about diversity mattering, it's, this isn't necessarily a, a social good piece. There's a utility to that yeah. too, especially being an entrepreneur, right. And building a startup, the, the right. more, the more lenses you can see the world through and the more <clears throat> diversity of people that you can understand, the better off that you are. So, you know, it's always been a, a big, a big topic and a big focus for me. And I, I think it wins in the end. It's not just about doing good. I mean, the thing is like, what I always try to say, so like in that, in the, in the panel discussion, I, I, I said that, um, Look, you're, you're in the hustle and bustle of founding a startup, right? You're, you're at Behavu, you don't learn how to code an app, right? So at the end of the day, you're, you're like, oh shit, I need to build an app. I need somebody to, to help me with this. And you're like, you know, flipping through your Rolodex, you're looking at LinkedIn and you're like, oh, okay, this is the first person that said yes. Oh, he's a white cis male. At that moment, do you care? Like, you're gonna hire him, you're gonna get him, right? So, but, like, so, so a lot of the times, especially in Germany, which is quite, you know, like very homogenous and compared to like, let's say Netherlands, um, you're not gonna, you know, this is not gonna be a priority. But what I always try to tell people is humans are social, uh, humans are tribal animals, right? We, we, we associate ourselves with people that look like us, that think like us, that, that you know, share a background and share opinions as well. So if you're in the process, and you know, like everyone in the world says they want, they would only hire the right, the, the best person. But just that's the same thing as saying like, you know, I'm not a racist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. Right. <laughs> nobody <laughs> would say, yeah, I'm a racist, right? Nobody would say, no, I'm hiring a person that looks like me. But you have to, I, I always tell founders like, or, or just in general, you just have to address your own unconscious bias. You have to be like, okay, am I really hiring this person because they're the best? Or am I hiring this person because they're the, they're the, uh, they look like me because it's comfortable, right? Um, I've also, like, I mean, had to have a negative example, which is like prime example of why the business case of diversity matters is when I was in Amsterdam, like I was skipping, <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll circle back, but like I, I, I worked in the moving industry, like moving house, and we tried to hire a content writer, right? And we only had male applicants and the best person for the job was this girl that that just, uh, like she was, a, she, she just got fired from her first job because the company went insolvent and she was, she was by far the best for a travel startup. Um, I worked, or like we approached her and I spent a whole day, a whole working day trying to convince her to come to our company. We did like, we, we wrote together, we, we looked uh, at different topics we could write and she was really enthusiastic. And at the end of the day, she, she rejected us because uh, she got an offer from Treatwell. Um, and you know, like I'm not saying it's because it's, it's, a, it's a female industry, but it's because 
there was not a single male in our uh, female in our company, um, and at the same time, like the whole industry, the moving industry, you know, it's like there's there there are no women in this industry, so. I wouldn't say, like, if you would ask her, did you reject this because there were no women in the company? She'd definitely say no, but like, it was an unconscious bias. Yeah. What am I trying to say with this is, literally 50% of the workforce didn't apply for us. Mm -hmm. Like, we had half the talent pool, and half half of anything in a startup context means, can mean like the, like, the difference between success and failure, right? Yeah, it's, uh, I think it just reiterates the fact that you need to have a, a conscious, commitment to this earlier in the process because frankly diversity begets diversity and a lot of people that I know friends and colleagues that are people of color and they're looking at an opportunity they want to make sure that that diversity already exists right, right? I mean you don't want to be the sole woman in a sea of men I mean maybe some people are okay with that and, yeah. and that's fine but if you, if you don't make that commitment early, it gets yeah. a lot harder to do it after the fact. And I mean, at the, um, at the end of the day, it's, it's like, um, I'm not a big fan of making diversity a business case because at the end of the day, it is the right thing to do, right? Uh, right. Why, why should some people have less of a chance than others just because of the color of their skin, their sexual orientation, what have you? Yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> but yeah, points. that was that was like the beginning of Vihau was 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 marked by that culture shock. That like you know, like oh, the first realization that I was like different. Um, my dad's from the very southwest of Germany, a uh, city near Basel. Uh, so I'm right at the border. Constance? Or? No, it's uh, Lörrach. Okay, yeah. gotcha. So my family's from the other side of the Bodensee. Yeah, nice. Um, cool. A little bit more east. No, but Lörrach is extreme. Like I'm. I'm this is this always surprises me because it's very like it feels quite rural, but people are so tolerant. Like it's just because you're at the French, Swiss, German border. I guess it, it just gives a lot of you know like turnover in people, and people are just so ridiculously tolerant. And uh, but um, so I never had that association with Germany. But once I came to to Vihau, it got a lot better. Like I mean, obviously when people first realized, okay. Man, this 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 guy who speaks you know Chinese additionally and English natively, like he has this big big advantage compared to me, who only speaks German. Um, it really like you know once that first internship or exchange semester happened, like you know the people grow up, right? Like looking back at it, the other students grew up. Uh, and tribes change. Tribes change. Yeah. yeah, like you know, once they notice, especially like if you're on exchange semester and you have people from all creeds and nations, you're just like, okay, I'm not gonna, like, what's the point of of clinging to this archaic idea of a tribe? Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So vehau. bachelor's. And you were committed. You were like, I want to go into business. Yeah, I did. Uh, did you know you wanted to be an entrepreneur or were you just interested in the broader concept? I was interested in the broader broader scope of it. Like I I thought it was like especially like growing up in Hong Kong I was very surrounded by it as well. Being like, you know, the financial capital of Asia, the logistics capital. My dad worked for Metro, um, so worked in, in, in sourcing. Mm -hmm. Um and it was extremely like I was very surrounded by it. Um and it's just something that I grew up with and something I really wanted to, to emulate to do. Uh, and what, what it fascinated me about, about it was just the versatility of business, um, where, you, where you can be like, okay, 
every, literally every company needs a business guy. So I can really go to, you know, like if I want to go to a nuclear power plant or something, you know, like they, they all need a business guy, but I was always fascinated with tech. Definitely. Did I know if I wanted, if I wanted to be an entrepreneur? No. Um, I did watch like, I guess I watched it with my dad, but I did watch every Apple presentation uh, mm -hmm. there was uh, ever since the, like key memory is the, the first iPhone presentation where I was like, I want an iPod and I want a phone. Like, why the hell would you just combine it? Like, I like to have those two devices separated. And then like the first iPhone came out because you know, the rumor mill was swearing. And then when the iPhone came out, it was like, Oh shit, this yeah. is cool. <laughs> so I just grew up with like tech and, and gadgets and, and, and all of that. Hong Kong being super modern uh, back, back then, yeah, it, lost its, it lost its track. Yeah. Things have changed recently there. Yeah, That's absolutely. Um, but yeah, no, I always thought like international management would be my thing. Um, I did, you know, like I did my exchange semester in, in Beijing, did it in Chinese. Um, I did an internship in San Diego, was back in Hong Kong at Commerce Bank, um, and just tried to like, you know, broaden my scope. But once I left, once I graduated, like a friend of, uh, the dad of a friend of mine approached me and said, Hey, I, I need a guy like you. Um, it was he, they had a company, a startup doing like drinking powders. Uh, that was really fun. Um, so I, I was in Hong Kong, um, just you know, doing like doing the accounting and everything. And then like, I get a call and they say like, Hey, or can you organize like a conference in, in Chicago, uh, flew over there, organized that. So that was my first job out of, uh, out of university. The founder was, he told me in a, like a very French, he got mad at me because I was practicing French on Duolingo because he said like, Oh yeah, well now you can understand my secret language. I don't want that. <laughs> so that, that was the per kind of person that I had to deal with. And then he told me, uh, Daniel, uh, I'm a marketing genius. Like you should just do what I do, what I tell you. Uh, so I, I was like, okay, this is, this is not it. Waited for my master's actually in Hong Kong back, back, uh, lived with my, my, my mom again, waited for a master's, did a few startup events just just uh just for fun in hong kong and then i get a call by my friend uh janice janice fisher oh, yeah. uh, actually and uh, he was uh working for rocket in hong kong and he was like hey da hey man oliver samuel was just here and uh can you do finance mm -hmm. i was like yeah sure i can do finance i didn't tell him that i like flunked the first finance <laughs> module <laughs> but uh he, he was like yeah can you do finance i said yeah sure when can you can, when can you be here and i said well I don't know, like in an hour, I have nothing to do this afternoon. <laughs> he was like, oh, no, no, come tomorrow morning. Started, started the next day, um, cleaned up finance as a freelancer first. Two weeks in, the head of APAC comes in and was like, you know, like, hey, like this, this guy, he speaks, you know, he speaks Chinese, he speaks German, he speaks English, he's born and raised here. Like, he, he's from Bihau, uh, like, and then these two weeks more has happened than, you know, like in the last two months. So what are we waiting for? Like, let's hire him. So, um, I got, I became CFO of Hong, Food Panda Hong Kong with 23. Wow. <laughs> so, and do you attribute that? It's, it's a really cool story. And you know, obviously you've got this Vehu connection, right. you know, kind of coming into a rocket venture, but you also have this, you know, this rich kind of language base. Do, yeah. you, do you attribute 
that opportunity to one or the other or both? Or Well, it's synergistical, right? Like, uh, I, I would say, well, like when I was there, it was, you know, I mean, Giannis came in straight from Germany, first time in Asia, uh, did a tremendous job. But like, you know, he was the German manager who told people what to do <laughs> and people, but, but didn't understand like the, the, the cultural context. Well, whilst I kind of was like, from the beginning, like kind of his, his translator, kind of, you know, if that makes sense, not necessarily language, but more like cultural, culturally, uh, that was a really good working relationship. Um, but yeah, no, absolutely. Like the, the, the finance team that I, that I built up and, and like our working language was Chinese. Um, we like, obviously we clicked much faster. Um, we had a lot of like um, drivers from, from, from China and also like, you know, Indian drivers with whom I could just like, they related to me faster than, than they did with my like, you know, white expat colleagues. Um, because they were all, you know, like lived in Hong Kong for, for ages. Uh, so seriously, my, my first company I built, my biz, my business partner was a friend from grad school and he, right. he was from the mainland from Wuhan, oh, cool. uh, yeah. which obviously has become a much more famous city than it was <laughs> back then. But, um, I remember, you know, he came to grad school in British Columbia where I was, didn't speak any English. Oh, wow. And uh, by the end, he wrote an incredible master's thesis that I helped him edit, but it was on the topic of Guangxi. Okay. Um, are yeah. you familiar with that? I guess you might be familiar with that concept. Well, Guangxi is basically oh, like- Oh, okay, sorry. I, 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 I'm also probably butchering yeah. the pronunciation on that. Guangxi. Right? Guangxi, yeah. <laughs> but you know, the basic concept is like, you know, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. And relationships are everything. Relationships are everything. Like, so, did coming from Hong Kong, did having that language, did that guangxi, does that play into those experiences? I'm pretty sure it did. I, um, the thing is though, like when I meet Hong Kong people, so my mom always like spoke Mandarin with me, right? She, she was very, um, I remember this one scene where, what with this one core memory where, I, where we, me and my brother were watching Digimon uh, on the TV and it was in Cantonese and she came up and switched it off or switched the channel. I don't remember, but she was just like, like, I don't want you guys to mix the dialect because it is too close, you know, like, so I don't know if it's a trauma or if the languages is that are those that different. But like when I meet a Hong Kong person and they're like, oh, okay. They said, I'm like, oh, sorry. Like I don't speak Cantonese. And they were like, and I was like, what? <laughs> so like there's that, there's that barrier as well. So, but Mandarin, um, definitely, like it definitely helped. They're more comfortable speak, like depends on who you ask, of course, but like most of my employees were in, in, in Hong Kong back then were, were more comfortable speaking Mandarin than, than English. Um, and it was definitely like, you know, the, the way we commu like, communicated was definitely a bit more, you know, on the same cultural wavelength. Uh, it was, it wasn't necessarily Guangxi, it was more like the, the, the boss and employee relationship was, was much more, you know, like culturally on, on the same wavelength, right? And I had this funny incident, I, talk, I talked about this at, on my last podcast. With Oliver. Yeah, exactly. Um, where the uh, where my accountant, like a great guy, really brilliant. He really got to work, super pragmatic, and like I told him uh, to account for 
for the meals that we expensed ourselves because we were a de delivery company, right? And so the meals that we expensed ourselves, like how to like, like account for it, right? And then he did it. And then like two weeks later, we looked at the books and we were like, huh, there's kind of cash missing, right? And then and he was cash missing from the like cash versus profit about P&L. And he was like, and I asked him and he was like, yeah, no, I would have done it like this. I'm like, why didn't you tell me, <laughs> right? <laughs> why, why didn't you tell me um, we're a startup where like be pragmatic about it. Like there's no, I don't want to have that boss, boss employee relationship, uh, the traditional one. Right? So he was just following orders, basically. He was following orders and, you know, but I would, I would say like the way I could approach it, the way I could tell him, man, like, you know, let, let's break this up. What, the way I could address this issue was was quite was was uh, yeah. I attribute that to uh, to the cultural upbringing that I had. Yeah, right. yeah. It's uh, that's such an interesting dynamic. You know, I spent better part of eight years working in Africa. Right, and wow. uh, and I ha I faced very similar dynamics. Right, where you where I would try to create a collaborative environment, yeah. but there was a deference. And I think, you know, I don't want to try to unpack it sociologically too much, whether it's, you know, colonialism or, yeah. you know, the Oriental and the other, you know, yeah. the, um, but for some reason it was very, very difficult until you built long standing, you know, meaningful relationships yeah. of love and trust. It became very, it was very, very hard to kind of collaborate. If you were the boss, you know, you were, you were making the decision. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like I'm, yeah. I'm doing the same thing right now, uh, which is another time jump, but like it is an untangling, right? Like, yeah, we, it, it is a cultural question, like also just company culture question, right? Like there are companies out there where it's like the boss makes the decision and employees just execute. I don't, that's not my management philosophy. It's also not my cultural philosophy, right? Well, I think it's really interesting, it, it, particularly in Germany, like my my father and my uncle's generation, and I'm assuming the generations before them, um, didn't fraternize with their staff. No. It was extremely hierarchical, yeah. right? Like the boss told you what to do and you zipped your lip and you, you did what they say. It was very, very top down. And obviously I think the next generation, you know, those were boomers and, and earlier, I yeah. think over time that, that divide has, has closed a little bit, but there are times, particularly in, older family-owned businesses, Mittelstand, things like that, where you really do see that kind of top-down management style. And then here in the, the startup world, particularly in Berlin, where it's very international, you know, I think there's more of a culture of, of bottom-up or, or collaboration, but you do see those personality clashes yeah. still more than you Absolutely. think. And yeah. oftentimes it's like, this is the way my dad taught me how to do business yeah. or my grandfather taught me how to do business and you know deconstructing yeah. that kind of mentality yeah. i think becomes a challenge absolutely um i mean why do you hire people right like why do you hire people do you hire people because they should do their job that might work in a startup, but like most of the time it doesn't. You normally hire people to tell you what to do. Uh, Steve Jobs' right. best quote ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, you gotta quote the best. <laughs> but like, it's, it, it, it's, 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 I'm, I mean, I, I was in a meeting recently where, where um, you know, the, 
all the employees still have that mentality of, of their their boss telling them what to do. And I was like, I'm not a tech guy. And they they like, it was a it was a video call, and they were like, okay, so Daniel, tell us what to do. I'm like hold up <laughs> like explain it to me as if I was a three-year-old because I don't I didn't understand half of this meeting's content like why how are you like what would you do and they were like nobody's asked me this before <laughs> you know like it was it was it was crazy um and like you always want to hire people that are better like at at you do uh, what you do right like the movie I mean this is also like over, over over quoted but the Steve Jobs movie where he says you know like I play the orchestra and you play an instrument right it's a it's yeah. that's the role of the CEO right like the role of the CEO is to hold it all together yeah. um, and you know see the how all these moving parts are working together but not but not you know the best sales guy is most of the time is not the best head of sales, yeah. right? Yeah. Like you want people to tell you what the, what to do in their best in their skill set, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I always reckon that the good founders and the good leaders are facilitators. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Yeah. Maybe it's that's not as romantic as being the conductor of the yeah. the symphony, but in the end, it's about empowering people to yeah. do their best. And now I'll steal a, a quote, which is from Daniel Pink. It's like, if you give people autonomy, if you give them the ability to achieve mastery and you give them a sense of purpose, and right. then you coordinate all of those talents and all of those motivations across an organization, that's where the best leaders, I think, succeed. Absolutely. And that is the space in the end, it doesn't matter if you're building technology or you're selling widgets, you're in the people business. Absolutely. And I think this is something that VHU is, or like a lot of VHU alumni get wrong, uh, in my opinion. Like I've met, a, I've met a bunch that really believe that they're the ones creating value. But I haven't met a single, or I have, but like 90% of the founders didn't build the app. 90% of the founders did not do the, you know, the, the call to find the supplier or you know what what have you uh or build the machine or whatever right like and i think that's one of the things where that a lot of vihau founders or, or young founders for that matter can can learn from you know you're the, you're the facilitator you're not the value creator that's right the, the idea is the easy part the idea is the easy part the execution is the hard part um and uh yeah that, that humility in from like uh, of being a CEO uh, is, I think, what also defines me in as my or my management style. I would say, yeah. So I want to hear how you got there. Oh so yeah, sir. Let's go back. We did a bit of a time jump. That's okay. <laughs> That's okay. As long as the the stories are compelling, people will follow. So you're at you're at Food Panda. You are now a super young CFO of a well-funded, fast-growing company in in Asia. Yeah. Super fun. Um, I mean, this was this like what I was saying earlier, like this was our accelerator it was just it was amazing because we had literally unlimited money um, and our, our main main objective was growth. Right. Like and, and, and we had the call from Mark Summers saying, like, why didn't you hit your numbers? 
why didn't you spend more, mm -hmm. right? So, so the thing is like, I was doing the budgets and once a, once a month, like there would be a budget call with Berlin and they would, you know, I would answer a few questions and they would just transfer, you know, a six figure Euro sum. And it was, it was basically running a startup without having cash constraints. Mm -hmm. And as you know as well, like cash, having cash constraints and fear of you know cash running out is half of the work <laughs> of a founder. Um, so that was really cool. Learned a, a huge bunch. Um, uh, left left the company um, and went to Berlin. Um, yeah, like we like the growth slowed. We had an, a manager from that came from Berlin that really like took the wind out of our sails. Sadly, sadly, because it was one hell of a ride, but um, uh, yeah, I mean, don't have to go into that, but like it was, it was too bad having to leave uh, or not having to leave, but we wanted to leave, all of us wanted to leave because there was just not that speed anymore that we had over the last, oh, that we had over the 12 months that we were there. Uh, that, it's an interesting piece worth pausing on because, you know, we were talking a little bit offline, like how I, I see myself as a zero to one guy. That yeah. is my happy space. And the reason it's that way, it's because it's fast and it's dynamic and the learning curve is through the roof and yeah. you're, you're always on your toes. You, you know, you kind of mentioned that the, the speed and the inertia oh, started gosh. to change. I'm curious, like, I think all businesses do that. That curve starts to flatten out inevitably. You can't have a hockey stick forever, right? Is it... Do you find that, and I, I don't want to, to call anyone out or anything, but, you know, is that triggered by a change in personnel and a change in culture or just a change in trajectory of the business? Change in culture. Like, I've no, no doubt about it. The guy that came in, um, he really, like, you know, he, he was a manager of more the keeping up looks caliber uh, than actually, like, executing. Like, I mean... Um, I've worked, I'm, I'm, I still work with Giannis a lot. Um, and, uh, Giannis was a guy, like he was the, 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 the managing director of the company back then. And he was the guy that, you know, like talked to the, the drivers or the, you know, they have these little driver clubs, you know, he was the guy that talked to the drivers and, um, and talked to the restaurant owners as well. Like the important ones, he was the guy that was like on the floor talking to, to phone the, our head of customer support, etc. Like it was, there was so much fire in that company and, and what we were doing and, this guy came in, this this new MD, and like I just remember him asking about like how does cash co like like three months in or something, and he was asking like one of the drivers like how does so how does the cash collection work with the restaurants? And we were like we don't we don't have like the driver was like we don't have that like <laughs> it's, it like that's that's like Hong Kong doesn't have that that uh, restaurant cash relationship, and he. And it was just like, oh, and he was just oblivious. Mm -hmm. And he's just, you know, like he didn't care. Like yeah. we cared so much, maybe a bit too much. Mm -hmm. But um, it was just so fun. And uh, it was a change in personnel, a change of culture. Sadly, um, we weren't ready to leave. I mean, after we came, after we, we left, or around the time when we left, um, Deliveroo came in in Hong Kong and just like grabbed market share. It was a land grab. Um, I mean, we wanted to hire, like the drivers were the bottleneck, like the, the delivery guys, that was the bottleneck. So what happened was the, um, we had this, this compensation scheme for the drivers and we had literally three meetings and we still didn't decide it. 
uh, and Deliveroo came in, took our, our, our compensation scheme and just ran with it and all the drivers switched over to Deliveroo. Yeah. That was... So it goes, right? So it yeah. goes, yeah. I mean, that's, that's too bad. So you jumped ship, you moved... You moved back to the motherland, yeah, but to a new city. You hadn't been in Berlin before. You hadn't lived in Berlin. Before. I hadn't lived in Berlin. I've visited it before, but I haven't hadn't lived in Berlin. Um, but yeah, going to the startup mecca. Um, yeah, no, I, I moved to Berlin. Did a few few odd jobs. Um, had a had, like uh, worked in finance at Movinga. That was what a ride <laughs> that was. That was it was really short, but oh my god, those were three intense months. Okay. I can only imagine. Um, that might have to be a separate episode. That is a separate episode. <laughs> but um, yeah, like I was, I was responsible for like you know writing off a lot of a lot of outstanding uh, uh, outstanding payments and collecting a lot of cash. Um, was extremely fun, but that was a bubble that that burst after my time. Um, yeah, three months, pretty very intense. Did a few other odd jobs, and then uh, basically I. Um, Met up with an old uh, friend of mine, old alumni uh, from VHU, same year as me, uh, David Davichanetsky. And he was like, hey man, I have this cool idea. Like, uh, how about we do student tax returns? Studentensteuererklärung. Because, um, I don't know if it still happens at VHU, but there's, there are always these, there's this company, this large insurance company that sells insurances. Their, their way in is having a website called, like, um, university initiative and then like you know the city Stuttgart Duisburg whatever um, and then this consultant came the sales they, they act like they're a student led conference or something and then this this teach uh, this this uh, sales guy comes in presents why you should do your tax return as a student guys do it <laughs> um, and um, and then tries to sell you and sell sell the students insurances right hmm. so we were like yeah you know like we could actually build a tech solution to this hmm. and then we started with student tax returns Studentensteuererklärung, and that went viral that went just completely went off we we posted in a, in, a, in like in Facebook groups and like you know we spammed basically right and we got we just got 20 reshares. Um, that was still the Facebook, Facebook time. Facebook was still still buzzing. That is the most German URL I've ever heard of. Studentensteuererklärung.de. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the hilarious thing is, like, like everyone, like English native speakers, they're always like, "What the hell?" And Germans are always like, "Oh no, that's super." Casual. You can SEO the shit out of that, I imagine. Too. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, we were number one from the very beginning. <laughs> Um, so what we did is we actually like, you know, we started, you know, doing all these different domains. We were doing specialized tax tools. And the second one we did was uh, Bundeswehrsteuererklärung. So for soldiers, we did policemen, we did, um, we did um, uh, teachers, we did doctors, etc. But then like, you know, it flattened out because if you're going to do an engineer tax return, people are going to be like, well, what's the difference? Right? But it's bas it was basically the same infrastructure that was just rebranded for another target audience. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, like we ask questions such as, you know, like, what's your address at home? What's your what's your home address? What's your what's your address? Uh, university address. Um, and then, you know, you said, OK, I was there for three days a week and then it would automatically calculate the, the costs of that. And then we asked the same thing for, you know, study groups, but the speciality of study groups is you can only like deduct one way. You can't deduct the way back. It's, it's weird. 
But if you would just do it with the normal tax form, you wouldn't have that UI, UX. Mm -hmm. um, right. Whilst with police men and women, we would just be like, you know, we would rephrase it saying like how many, like, you know, to the, to the police station, how many days a week were you there? Mm -hmm. So it was a lot of surface polishing, but it was also very like a lot of like specific questions, yeah. you know, like such as, you know, a policeman and a policewoman always have uniforms that they that they have and they have to clean as well. So that, that those costs they they deducted. So we always showed that field while students don't, you know, it's not, it's not work related to clean their clothes. Yeah. So like we did a lot of like special special UI UX features for for the individual, but it was all the same code base. It was all the same back end. So it started to grow pretty quickly. Yeah, it was it was really fast. Um, we like looking back, it was um, it was amazing. Like we 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 started free, um, and then we started monetizing by doing thirty five euros per tax return. And like looking back, it was it was just crazy. Like I mean we. Within, I'd say, within like 15 months or something, we hit like a million euros lifetime revenue. Um, and this is this is talking. This is like five months of being free, right? So so essentially, we took 10 months to hit like a million or something in revenue. It was really viral. It was really cool. Um, we raised a bunch of money from from uh, a London fund called ProFounders and a, and a fund from from uh, Cologne called Capnamic. Right. But yeah, no, like after about two, one and a half months, uh, one and a half years, me and my co-founder, we like you know we didn't see eye to eye on everything. We we had a bit of a different vision for the company. Um, so um, long story short, like we had a bit of a mediation session, um, the investors and us, it was a very, like I'm very happy and very thankful for, for them, for being the grownups, like to put it that way, because if we didn't have, wouldn't have had that mediation session or mediation in general, I don't think we would have like gone apart, left, uh, gone our separate ways the way we did. So um, we had those mediation sessions and, and at the end of the day, we, I left, I left the company, um, which I mean, which sucked, but um, it was, it was the right thing to do back in the day. Uh, we really had to, you know, we, we didn't see eye to eye on stuff. Um, and sometimes it's just the be better thing to do, right? Like it's, it's like counseling, like, like relationship counseling, right? If it's, if, if it like a result can also be that it just won't work out. Right. And to, but to be clear, when you say you left the company, you didn't leave the masthead or the cap table. You just left the employment. Yes. The yeah. Yeah. So you still were a shareholder. You were still a founder. Exactly. Yeah. I, I do find it, you know, it's almost a blessing that you had such a co two competent VCs Absolutely. on your cap table because, you know, number one fail point of a startup. Co-founder conflict. Co-founder conflict, Absolutely. team, team, team across the board. And a lot of times angels aren't, you know, they aren't prepared. They don't, they're not resourced to be able to do those kind of mediations. I think it's not know, their job. good VCs do that regularly, yeah. right? So that's almost part of their kind of tool toolkit to they're be able to support their, support their ventures. So you yeah. got some really good kind of mediation in that process that made it made yeah. it amicable i guess absolutely so that was that was fun uh no not fun not fun no no that was not fun but it was good it was it was it was it was healthy <laughs> how was that 
you know, as someone that has left a company that I've founded before, um, there's a lot of emotion and identity yeah. tied up in that. You know, it, one of the things that I try to teach young founders that I work with is I have this mantra is like, you are not your startup, yeah. you know, and repeat that daily over and over again, because it's amazing how quickly those lines get blurred, oh, right? You know, so much, yeah. founders talk about the highs and lows of the entrepreneurial journey, but it's generally, it's not their personal highs and lows. Yeah. Their highs and lows are tied to the highs and lows of the venture itself, right? So good day, lots of sales, something raised funds, everyone's happy, bad day, something's in the shitter, I feel miserable. So you become inextricably kind of oh, so interwoven much. with that venture. And then if you do end up in a situation where you separate from this kind of baby that you've you know, built and nurtured, for me at least there was a bit of a void there and I had some healing I had to go through. Like, how was that separation for you? I mean, it's, it's exactly as you said, like it was healing, right? Like um, you, it, it, it is so like, tied up with your identity because you're like, you know, it's, it's, it's like creating something and then it's, it's, it gets taken away from you. Like, absolutely. You, you do like ask her because you have also like looking back, yeah, I had so many ideas still, still to be explored, still to be done. And then also just the feeling of, man, this is unfair, right? Like, you know, um, at the end of the day, right? Like you, you got to, Look like looking back, I didn't do everything right. I also didn't like you know as a still being very young. We had you. I would tell myself like you know just don't take it that seriously. You know don't take yourself that seriously. Don't take that this whole role that seriously. Right. Um, we. I really thought I was. I was. I was onto something here with this tax return thing. But like, if I would put myself in my shoes back then, I would probably. I would have probably quit earlier. I would have probably like tried to have that talk way earlier. Um, Just for your own well-being. For my own well-being. For my sanity. <laughs> um, because, like you know, it's. It, that's just. That's just how. There, it's not. It's in the grand scheme of things, it's not that important, right? Because if you if you fail at a company, you know it feels like the end of the world. But just get up and do your next thing, yeah. right? It's and it's it's not that hard to find the next thing. It's much like it is hard. Like don't get me wrong, founding a company, having a good idea is is friggin' hard. But it's it's still easier than like repairing your broken your broken soul of of. Yeah, of well, failing. I mean, that's it. You know, when you're a founder, you're you're dealing with so much conflict, right? Conflict with the market, conflict with your product, like yeah. you know, conflict with your messaging. You're constantly trying to fix things that are, that are somewhat broken or are not functioning at full capacity. When you take conflict with people and throw that into the equation, which comes with a whole lot of different neurochemicals <laughs> than you have, you know, dealing with a. a a product that's buggy or something like that becomes a pretty fucking heavy weight to, to carry around yeah. with you, you know? So did you feel like you were carrying a, a burden and a weight for a long time oh, before yeah. you? Yeah. Oh yeah. Like, I mean, I would always have like, I remember walking home, uh, 
you know, like every, every day I would just walk home. <laughs> like, you know, I took that, had that half an hour uh, walking home through a park. And I was just like, I, I'm like looking back, it's like, how did I actually walk through a park in the middle of the night? Because I'm such a scaredy cat. I'm like, I, you know, I flinched when, when it's dark and everything. And I'm like, how was it possible that I was able to like, you know, walk through that dark park, but I just needed it. Like I was just, I just needed that, that, you know, solitude of just like having my thoughts sorted out. I called a friend sometimes, uh, but most of the time it was just like me and my thoughts. So yeah, no, it was, it was, you know, you have to deal with it. Yeah. yeah it, it's such a fascinating way that you describe that walk through the park, because that's something that I felt during that, my experience like that, which was, I was so deep in my own head and my own feelings yeah. that I kind of lost spatial awareness <laughs> and I wasn't very present, yeah. you know, and it affected my other relationships outside of work oh, yeah, too, absolutely. because it was just so, so consuming for me. Yeah. So when the separation was agreed upon, obviously there was some, some trauma and some emotions tied up that was there a sense of relief? Yeah, as, as well. Like, I mean, it was, the, th the thing is like, I, it was, there was a sense of relief, but like it didn't last long. And it also, because I, I then immediately jumped into the next thing, mm -hmm. uh, because Yanis uh, actually came up to me and he was like, man, I have this project that, that I'm running, which is like a co-working space. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, we have this project where we don't have an MD. <laughs> so do you want to like do it? <laughs> because I kind of need you. <laughs> um, and then I was, I jumped head in, um, into this role of uh, like setting up a co-working space, uh, scaling spaces in Berlin. Um, it was completely different because like, you know, I was, I was really focused on marketing and growth and, and like online stuff. And this was like suddenly like literally brick and mortar. Right? And so uh, I, um, I, uh, it was always clear to me that it would be an interim role because I wanted to stay in that online, online growth, online marketing world. Um, so I kind of, I mean, it wasn't the most healthy coping mechanism, I'd say, but like I did pour like, you know, <laughs> that into the next thing, right? right? Yeah. It, it was my, my rebound. <laughs> we, we, fair enough. We can do that. Yeah. 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 No, I, um, no, it was, but it was, it was, that was extremely fun. Um, did that for, for quite a while, um, hired my, my successor and, and like co MD slash successor, uh, Martin Balvik, great guy. I don't know if you've met him. Also, we have alumni. It's interesting, a quick aside, that's probably not that relevant, but when I was exploring doing my PhD at Vehau and I, I met this prof and he said, you know, why don't you, I was living in Colorado. He said, why don't you fly to Berlin and, and let's meet. I'm yeah. taking, uh, I'm taking my master in entrepreneurship students on a, a tour of the startup scene in yeah. Berlin. I said, okay. So I flew over. He said, here's where we can meet on the first day. Yeah. And it was upstairs scaling. at scaling spaces. Yeah. So my very first touch point with Vehau was at scaling spaces. Very cool. Yeah. Well, that was, that was my, 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 my co-baby. <laughs> so that would have been. Yeah, that would have been the fall of 2018. Yeah, fits. Yeah, yeah cool. absolutely. Um, no, Martin's a great guy. Um, he was uh, like, um, he 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 ran it after after I left. Um, and he led it to exit. Uh, no, it's still running. Oh, okay. I thought there was an acquisition there. No, 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 no. it's still running. Um, 
there were a bunch. There was a bunch of consolidation in a lot of recent years, but um, scaling spaces is, is not yet. I guess one one of them. Um, no, but like I, the thing is, like I said, you know, like it was always clear. It was it was marketing. It was interim. Um, uh, marketing in the future. So actually a friend of mine reached out um, who I worked with at Food Panda and he was uh, back in the moving, like he was in the moving game and he was like, hey man, like we think lead gen for, for, move, for, for moving companies, uh, that really works. Uh, do you want to like join us with your experience with your online marketing stuff? I, you know, I, I flew over to Amsterdam. He's Dutch. Um, flew over to Amsterdam and, and did a set up the first few marketing campaigns, which was, and I really liked it. I really liked the team. And, uh, and then I, um, I, I, I flew over and then we worked together and it was like, yeah, this is cool. Um, and. I flew to, I moved to the Netherlands. I moved to Amsterdam because I was also like, okay, I was here in Berlin for two and a half years, not my favorite city, city necessarily. Um, and maybe I wanted to like check out other places as well. And then didn't get that far, went to the Netherlands. <laughs> I, I just want to connect the dots on something because you know, you were in Hong Kong and you were a super young CFO right. and then, you know, Obviously, you guys founded what would become Wundertax, yeah. right? And then you kind of did some other roles, and now you're getting hired on, on, on the marketing side. Was it the role that you had founding Wundertax that kind of taught you a lot of that Absolutely. performance marketing skill set? Yeah. yeah, that was that was Wundertax. Yeah, we did a lot. I was responsible for marketing and stuff like that. Um, uh, yeah, that was that was my main responsibility. I think there's just an interesting lesson there, right? Which is it's probably less valuable to study finance or study marketing or study something in school yeah. as it is to, you know, dive in the fucking deep end and do it with your own money on the oh, line. Absolutely. Like you can, you can become a, an expert in something because those lessons are so deeply ingrained in you because you have skin in the game. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, the thing is like the financial work, the finance work that I did, that was very like, it, it's, it sounds a bit weird, but like, you know, the finance, like marketing nowadays, like online marketing has much more to do with finance yeah. than, uh, uh, than whatever they teach you in university, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, on the topic of marketing, because you're looking at click through rates, you're looking at conversion rates, you're looking at, you know, what's my return on advertising spend, etc. Like it's very numbers driven. Yeah. But I think the, my marketing philosophy is probably also the subject of another podcast. <laughs> cool. So you go to Amsterdam. I go to Amsterdam. Yeah. Start. Start. Which is a pretty great city. I was just there the other weekend. Fantastic city. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. It's such a livable city as well. It's, it's really built for humans uh, and not for, you know, cars or, or just packing as many people as possible in the same place. Uh, it's a small city. It's eight hundred thousand, relatively small, eight hundred thousand people. Um, super international, but um, and like you underestimate how how much quality of life being able to bike everywhere yeah. actually is. Uh, so so moved to Amsterdam and we scaled up this company. Um, it was a, I did a lot of marketing there. I did a lot of like all the hands-on stuff. But then Corona hit and we we were like okay, um, we tried all these 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 growths. Hacks, um, the biggest, but you know, like the biggest value add that companies, that moving companies have is, you know, doing things 
in cash, mm -hmm. uh, because can you do as can you do that much value add that you you know compensate for the twenty one percent in in VAT? So uh, we didn't never really got companies to get more services from us except for these marketing services, uh, which was fine because we doubled down on that and we actually bought a local competitor. Uh, so you were a marketplace then. We were a marketplace, yeah. We were a marketplace for we're lead gen for moving companies, and. But we doubled down on this and bought a local competitor. Um, it was so we became market leader in the Netherlands. We bought a international moving platform, uh, which was insolvent from Berlin, um, actually from from also founded by Vihau guys. Um, relocately bought them, so uh, or the assets at least, and then we bought our biggest project, which was a which was an international uh, lead provider based in Australia, but Dutch guys. So that was a funny connection. Um, and that was our largest acquisition. Um, and it was, it was fantastic. It was a really good, you know, it was a great story. You know, we could come, we did a roll up game. We, we bought these companies. We did that, did essentially the same thing, but you know, like we could have one backend, we could uh, have the same marketing campaigns. We had the same leads, but with a much larger pool of moving companies and just had those, you know, very obvious synergies coming in. Um, and so we were able to, to buy all these companies, uh, ra raise the round with, with a few angels, but then we also like LBO'd, we bought them with, with leverage. Um, and that was, um, that was really fun. But um, to me, it was also like, okay, well, we're buying companies. This is M&A. Um, this was really fun. We bought three different, we did three different types of acquisitions. But if I wanted to do that, I would have, you know, gone into banking, yeah. gone into PE. So to me, I had that nagging thing, uh, nagging uh, voice in my head saying like, you have to go back to business. Mm -hmm. And um, did a bunch of interim CMO stuff, um, interim like head of marketing, did a lot of like interim CMO for an Atlantic Labs venture. I did a bunch of consulting stuff. But then I reached out to my old investors again at Wundertax mm -hmm. and they actually, um, Long story short, like it felt really good. I told them, like I, I, I made a business case. The, the, the a new MD was there. He said, like yeah, I wanted to, I want to sell the company, and uh, I uh, contact, like I was with the investors, and I was like, the business case, like this is a great, still a great business. So you're saying uh, there was a new MD in there was a new MD, at that point, yeah. not David, your co-founder. David actually left, and that guy wanted to sell the company. The guy wanted to sell the company, and then I was like, okay, this is a. This is a still a great business case, right? Like this company, because I still got the monthly reports and everything, and this is uh, this is a great business case. Um, and I appealed to the investors as a concerned shareholder, saying like, "Hey guys, this company had three management changes. Like the, the whole team is like, you know, I don't know, I didn't know anybody at the team anymore, and it still like it has these great numbers. Yeah. So, like, did a back of the envelope calculation." Um, and then our pro, the Sean from ProFounders was like, hey, let's hop on a call. Mm -hmm. uh, and it felt really good. It was really good. Um, it was, it was uh, we had a, everyone was on, on speaking terms, you know, we went into the, the whole like breakup, <laughs> uh, I'd like to call it, uh, but everyone was still on speaking terms. It was, it was a really friendly conversation and it felt good. And Sean asked the, the big question, like, hey man, what are you doing right now? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and that's how I got back to Wundertax. Uh, 
So you, but you didn't come in and say, Hey, I've got a, I've got a plan. I'm pitching you a strategy no. to keep this alive. It was like, Hey, I think this has legs. And then they asked you to basically, yeah. 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 I mean, like the, like they, I mean, they, it was, it was mutual, right? Like I was, I was like, what are you doing? And then the conversations after that were like, okay, like what are your ideas? And then, you know, had a bunch of them. Um, so that's how I became CEO of Wundertax 2.0, a refounder. A refounder. I love that. I love that word that you use. So I think a lot of people that kind of maybe had to leave their company, you know, would leave with some bitterness, you know, some, some negativity would be kind of left in their wake. You know, I've always been a believer of like, try to keep things above board relationships or everything, but sometimes, you know, sometimes our emotions get the best of us. Like, do you feel like in retrospect now, it was the way that you handled your departure that enabled your return down the road? I, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I'd say it was just, you know, like the, the level of professionalism was very high um, in the, when, when I left. Um, like, I mean, the thing is, the thing is, my dad always says you close the door silently, right? You don't slam the door. So, but he, uh, but I think that departure, of course, there was a certain sense of bitterness and, and like, I mean, was I in active contact with the, with, with the two investors over the years? Not really. Um, you know, like we, I had a chat with our, our principal, um, uh, the principal at, at, at Capnamic, who I also consider my mentor, Hannes, Hannes Rode. Um, uh, he's like, we, we had a bit of like sporadic contact, but it wasn't like I was actively in contact, but you know, like the memory they had or the impression that they had of me is like, this guy's quite integer and this guy is not, you know, he's not an asshole. Um, and I think it was just like, we handled a, it was a grown up talk. Right. And, um, what really convinced me to come back was when, when Jörg from Capnamic actually said like, Hey man, you have entrepreneurial freedom. Like mm -hmm. do, uh, go in, take a look around and tell us what to do. So that is that hence the refounder and Please. not, you know, interim manager. I'm not the inter, I'm not the interim manager. I'm not the, the, the M and a <laughs> M and a consultant or whatever. Um, no, he, he told me like, get in and tell me what to tell us what to do. And it's been a really great uh, ride since then. This is January. Um, oh, really fresh still yeah, too. It's still fresh. I want to ask you one question and please tell me if I'm, I'm crossing a line. It's not something that you can talk about. But when I left the company that I built, I had such a significant chunk of the cap table that it was in the investors, the existing shareholders best interest to make me an offer right. to buy me out because I could have essentially I could have like saddled them with yeah. complexity and held up decision making because I, I had so much of the company, you know, I, I don't know what your cap table position looked like, but was that ever put on the table? No. Like Daniel's leaving, we should just buy him out. No, no. So no. you still had one, you had one foot in the game regardless. Yeah. I mean, it was all a very, like, I mean, it was a very like lucky, um, series of events and, and, and coincidences, you know, like, I mean, back in the day, 
um, when I joined, you know, like having, uh, you know, just the fact that I had, I still had the the investor reports, Mm -hmm. the fact that like, you know, um, I mean, I only knew about the company being sold because uh, the MD like, you know, called me and told me because I didn't sign a, some, some, (laughs) something like some, uh, some, uh, how do you call it? Like a, like a board decision. <laughs> I didn't sign something. And so it was just like a lucky series of coincidences and, and uh, that, but it was, you know, I'd say like, there's this also like, we're big on the quotes today, but there's this great uh, saying, which is like, you know, opportunity is preparation. Luck, no, luck is preparation meets opportunity. Right. And I think I was at the right place at the right time. And yeah, yeah. Uh, it worked out. Yeah, amazing. So tell me about the past 11 months. You are now a refounder of your the company that you built. You're the CEO of the company. What is what is life like now and tell us a little bit about about the yes. the 2022-23 Wundertalks. It's been super exciting. Um, we've actually, like, what we've done is um, we in-housed. So, so actually, another part of the refounder story is I sat at the table in December with uh, the the head of online marketing back then and the senior engineer at Wundertalks when I was still there. I was like, hey, guys, I've got this, you know, I've got this Wundertalks thing on the hook. Are you guys in? And they were like, dude, did you smoke too much weed in Amsterdam? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, what are you talking about, Wundertalks? Like, that, it's... it's and then, and then I was like, no, 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 seriously. I'm back, baby. I'm back, baby. <laughs> I was like, I'm bringing the band back together, you know, Blues Brothers. <laughs> and they, so they joined the CMO and CTO. And, uh, but they were still on the team. No. They, oh, they, they had left also. also. So you really brought, brought the, band the old crew. Wow. <laughs> cool. Yeah. I brought the band back together and we really, we started like, you know, We've 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 done some drastic steps, right? We've we've said, okay, um, we're a tax like from a tech side, we're like, okay, we're we're uh, we're a tax company, right? We're we're a tax online tool. We're not a company uh, doing KYC. We're not a company doing co- uh, content management systems because these things were all like hand man- like self built, mm-hmm. and we were like, okay. We have the freedom of being a profitable company with a good chunk of revenue and being like, we can actually, th- we're not a scrappy startup anymore. We don't have to think in, 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 in actual cash costs. We can think in calculatory costs, mm-hmm. right? We can think about, okay, if we remove this, this will save us. Um, if, if we remove this and add another and a cloud and add a cloud service, this will cost us a hundred euros per month, but it will save 20% of the developer's time, which is the equivalent of this much money, right? Like, you know what I'm talking about. In the beginning of a startup, you're always like, okay, you're counting your cash. But like, we could actually like think in that way. We could be like, okay, no, we're, we're saving efficiency by spending this money, right? So, so like, that was our whole tech approach, being like, okay, everything in the cloud, of course, like, you know, uh, uh, trying to get like the best in class solutions. So we had three different email providers. We cut that out, got SendGrid, which is like a really good tool. Um, we, 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 f- sorry, uh, sorry that I'm quoting so much, but like, you know, Bruce Lee, a childhood hero of mine, I always said like, cut out the non-essentials, yeah, right? right. Um, uh, Mi- Michelangelo, he didn't build a, he didn't make a, 
a statue, he just removed the bits, right? So we always said like, let's remove all the unnecessary, uh, unnecessary parts that are not part of the core, you know? So that's, that was our tech approach, making our super lean, super fast, which resulted in July, we actually built the property tax tool, Grundsteuererklärung. Our team built that within a month and from scratch. And I was very, like, we were all very impressed how, you know, these guys rose to the occasion. The marketing side, you know, we in-housed it. We got rid of our, our marketing agency. They're still doing like some SEO work for us, but basically we in-housed it, started hiring people for, or retraining people to do marketing. We really like said, okay, we focus on new customers, tax returns, you know, like we have their email addresses. We'll just write them an email telling them, here's a 10 euro voucher, do your tax return with us. Um, and we focused on new customers and we've actually, like in October, we've actually grown like, 60% um, year over year, October being the tax deadline of last year, uh, the tax deadline of this year. And um, in terms of new customer revenue, we've actually grown 80% uh, in October. So really proud of these stuff, uh, these things, and we're, yeah, uh, we're really like bringing it back to growth. Um, that's what I'm glad you said that because that's the piece that's kind of interesting to me because now Wundertax is what six years old is that right five yeah, six years uh, old well wow no uh six years yeah six, six years. years yeah so you know from a an investor perspective or a VC perspective that tends to think of investments on 10-year life cycles right. right or or whatever you plug into the fund yeah. could 10 years or less right um, you know, they're looking for 30, 40, 50 X returns yeah. or write-offs, like nothing yeah. worse than a zombie. Yeah. You know, it sounds in a way like, you know, during the time you were gone and whatnot, you were hovering in that zombie space for a while. Now it was either, you know, a, tr a low value trade sale, yeah. or it was let's let's bring the band back together and yeah. re-spark this. Well, funny enough, that was not, like on their radar at all. Oh so that was the, you know. Well, I'm just wondering what, if expectations change for a venture-backed startup after so many years. Like, you know, it, is it now okay to build a non-hyper-growth company that is nicely profitable, that everybody can make returns off? Or are it, do investors in, and maybe you don't know this because you're not in their heads, but is the expectation still you know, become a unicorn and is, and for you as well as the investors, I'm curious about. So that is a fantastic question because that's something I ask myself all the time, but to give you my two cents, like, yes, right now it's, it's, I, I always joke like in our advisory board meeting, like they said like, Hey, show the world that you can still grow. And I was always joking. Like, I think this is the, the only board meeting in Berlin where the investors tell me to not be profitable <laughs> in this time and age, right? Like, um, we're just slightly unprofitable, right? We're not, we're not, uh, burning cash. I think right now it's like, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying anything new here, but right now it's, it's good to keep your, you know, like not to overspend, not to be, be fiscally, uh, conservative, be, you know, um, be diligent in what you spend, right? Like we, we also, like we looked at our, our P&L a lot and, and just cut out, like I said, cut out the non-essentials, keep the cash close. Um, Can I, do you mind if I interject on that? 
because you say, you know, right now it's a good time to be kind of fiscally responsible. When you say right now, I envision this in one of two concepts. One is there's a bit of an economic downturn. You know, there's a lot of kind of VC narrative about the well running dry, debatable, arguable. Nevertheless, there has been some macroeconomic changes. On the other side, I'm guessing you're also a seasonal company. Right. You have one big peak and then you you ride the wave getting ready for the next tax season. When you're talking about kind of that responsibility during that time, is it because we're now doing this at the end of November and you have 10 months till you have your real big spike again? Or is this in the context? It's it's a context context of macroeconomic trends. Right. Like we, we also have this big competitor. Right. We have tax fix who just off the back of a new funding round of 220 million. Um, are we, like, I'm pretty realistic about the fact, like considering like the macroeconomic trend and, you know, like them raising this huge round, are we gonna get, like, are, you know, our investor, our VCs gonna be crazy for us? Probably not. Um, but having said that, like, I do see a lot of very cool growth ideas um, that we have where we can basically like right now, all we did was, you know, we were, we were cleaning up the company, we were priming it for growth and bringing it back to the right course. Um, but did we do big moonshots? Not yet, right? Like so, but we have a lot of ideas and we think if we can find avenues of growth that, you know, that, you know, are not, that are 10x ideas and not, you know, like we're going to improve our conversion rate by 20%. I think that's something where we can re-spark interest. Right. But um, in terms of what the investors are, are looking at, like, I mean, I think I'm not in their heads, obviously, but I do think that they're quite excited about like what is going on right now. Um, but at the same time, of course, looking at the fund time, like there has to be some exit at some point, right? So. I think the market is also like the tax market, and, and as it is, is also ripe for consolidation because um, there are a lot of players. It's it, and it's happening, right? Like Agueras bought Contest. Uh, you probably know Contest. They bought them. Um, there's a lot of stuff happening in the fintech world, and I just see a lot of synergies where where it can work, where it could work. So you know that's that's one way. But I also believe that there are a lot of like adjacent markets that we can that we can work on and find that 10x. It's interesting. This is a question, but I'm going to caveat it up front and say it's rhetorical. Just just as a maybe I'm already saying it, but one thing I just wanted to add was also like, of course, but of course, having a dividend model is not in any VC's interest. Right. We we know the game. Right. Well, I'll just say it again, because this is upfront that this is a rhetorical question, because I would assume having been in similar shoes, this is not a question that you can answer. But it's it's a thought that comes to mind. Right. Like, you know, you're a, you're a nice, stable company with some, you know, some history behind you. You've got a, a competitor that in some cases, at least capitalization wise, looks like a behemoth. Yeah. There's kind of two approaches you can take. One is we're going to compete our asses off and we're going to chase market share. The other approach is we're going to skip profitability, double down on growth and become one damn good acquisition target. Yeah. Right. Because now there's deep enough pockets in multiple places that, right. you know, that could do that. So I think you it puts you in an interesting uh you know, it's the opposite of a rock and a hard place. It's like being between two really interesting and compelling alternatives. Yeah. So 
I would imagine, and again, I'm, I'm not answer, asking for an answer to that question, but I imagine there's something liberating being in a situation where, I mean, of course, anything can go wrong, but it's there's good options in both directions, essentially. It's a great position. Like, there's nothing worse as a startup uh, than running out of ideas to yeah. do, right? Like, and we're definitely the opposite, right? Where there's so many things that we that we like, so many ideas, so many paths we can go go down. I think to like, I'm, I don't have a definite answer for you, but like, I think, but I do believe. Um, in the concept of intentionality, like I mean, what a lot of corporates do wrong uh, is is keeping your options open, yeah. right? Like keeping your options open until both of them are gone. So, like I, I do believe that we are quite good at saying like we're going to do this, right? Um, and right now, what we're I mean, it's. it's we're a small agile team and we're profitable. We're not, you know, we're, we're not with the backs against our wall. Um, so our downside is pretty limited, but our upside is, is, you know, we find that, we find that 10 X. So that's what we're testing. Right. Well, like I said, we built, we built this tax property tax thing within a month because we're just so agile, which uh, like <laughs> agile is an overused word, but we're just very fast and we, we don't have that overhead, yeah. you know, with 25 people, you know, I, I know every single customer service person. Yeah. So we're all really like pulling and I love being in small teams. Like this is also maybe a good thing for founders, like having a big team mm -hmm. uh, or a, having a big team is, is not mm -hmm. So many people in Berlin equate a big team to success yeah, right. and big team is our bragging rights. You know, everybody's always like, how big is your team? Yeah. Right? Like, but, but it says so little about, I don't know if you know Basecamp, yeah. right? They have a tiny team, but right. they're huge, right. like, like revenue wise, because yeah. it scales. Like, why do you need 200 salespeople? Uh, if if you can scale online, right? Uh, like with online marketing. Yeah, you know, it's to me the size of the team does matter, but in the inverse way. Like I, 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 have, now, I have now found, and after four or five experiences, that I I cap out at about fifteen or sixteen people. Yeah. Like at that point, I can still maintain. It's because relationships are important to me, and like culture is so important to me and uh, kind of democratic processes are important to me and open dialogue and it gets harder and harder the larger you get and what I find like I'm, I think I'm naturally an empath so mm -hmm. um, I want to make sure everyone's happy and, and enjoying their experience yeah. and the larger the organization gets the harder it is for me to play that role yeah. you know and I mean 25 is still pretty reasonable as well but I couldn't imagine having to deal with hundreds of yeah. people. I think my quality of life would go down substantially. I mean, uh, I'm I'm 100% on your side. Like I I want to know like obviously I can't, you know, manage every every aspect of the company or every person, but we have like I have a very competent C-level team that I trust 120% and um what is important to me though is knowing each and every person at the company and it just caps out like at 100 because then at that point you're just like or i don't know even earlier probably 80 uh where you're just like okay who's that person <laughs> that just walked by you know? 
Yeah, I mean, it, I always go back to my time working in Africa as a development economist, right? And it's like you, success c tends to come from building meaningful relationships of love and trust, right? Yeah. Like you build those relationships, they're meaningful, people are, are working together. Yeah. Um, they believe in each other, they trust each other, and that's where the magic happens, yeah. you know? And it's just so hard, like so many things fail at scale. Right? Yeah, you know, fail at scale, 100%, yeah. Damn it, Daniel, we're already like one of the longest episodes I've done in a long time. And I, I want to keep this conversation going because I'm wow. digging it so much. And we've just been going off on fun tangents, but I, I got to call it this time. So um, bringing it back to my one little bit of structure, I, <laughs> I ask every guest the same three questions. Yep. So most of them hate it, but they get them anyway. So let's start with the first one. We've had a lot of life lessons already today, but... In your circuitous path and all of these different experiences, yeah. you've, you've gained a lot of life lessons. You've gained some wisdom along the way. Thinking of the next generation coming up at Veha or elsewhere, yeah. you know, what have you learned in your founder journey that you wish you could go back and tell your younger self? I, I think I already mentioned it. Like, um, don't take yourself too seriously. Like, Veha like in the, I, I said I flunked finance in the first try, right? Like you have that illusion or, or you, you, you think everyone's doing great. You think everyone's having, a, you know, great grades and you're the only one being like, you know, not, not good at university. Um, but nobody's ever asked me what my grades were in my bachelor's. Um, like, I mean, give it, a, give it your all. Be, be the best you can be. Like, I'm not saying, like, you know, I'm not saying grades don't matter. I'm not saying, like, don't try hard, but I'm just trying, but don't break yourself, right? Like, don't, don't do it to a point where it's, where it's unhealthy because that has happened at Vihau. Not to me. Like, I think I, I managed it quite well. Start going, like, starting from the second, third semester. But, but, like, don't, don't break, like, don't take it too seriously. Don't take life too seriously. It's interesting to hear you say that about that kind of like, you know, striving for the top, especially in a, in a highly competitive school like Vehau. Not only, you know, don't break yourself, but don't break others. Sometimes you see people that are trying to get that top of the ranking and get the best, you know, best placement in the study abroad or whatever. And, and you know, not only are you beating yourself up, but then you're... Look, I mean, during the second semester, like, I mean, this is during the fifth semester my brother felt got very ill so he had a brain tumor with uh, 21 so that was like that was devastating right like but my my dad said you know you can't do anything he's going to be in switzerland you, you're gonna you can visit him all the time but you know that was just a, such a reality check I, I i started going to the gym a lot started drinking way less at Bihau and 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 started you know like not taking the whole university thing that serious because like life is I mean, you hear it so often, life is short, but like, you know, I, I also, I also think life is not serious, not that serious because there are bigger problems out there. Right. Uh, same thing with founding a startup. Don't take, don't break your, don't break yourself. Right. Like go, go easy on yourself. Yeah. 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 I love that you said, don't take yourself so seriously because one of the things we didn't touch into on this that we talked about offline is. You do a little bit of comedy on this yeah, as well. I do. <laughs> I do. I do. Yeah. Does that help? Is that an outlet? 
It's an outlet. I haven't been doing a lot in Berlin uh, yet, sadly. Um, didn't find the time in between all the <laughs> refounding, but um, it is an outlet. It is it is an amazing hobby. It's a lot of fun. You can you you know it's it's the quintessential thing about not taking yourself too seriously. And I think in the role of a CEO, um, it's it really is a valuable skill to be able to laugh about yourself <laughs> or about the failure of your company or if you'd said something stupid in a meeting. <laughs> That's right. That's great. All right. A couple other questions, a little bit of insights yes. into you. Um, one of the things I feel like I can learn so much about a person is by what's on their bookshelf. Is there a book you're reading? Is there something on your bedside yeah, table? Yeah, I fall asleep all the time, which is um, <laughs> which is why we sleep. Right. <laughs> oh, why we sleep? Why we Matthew sleep. Walker. Yes, love Matthew that book. Yeah, um, I mean, he prefaces it with "It's a compliment that you fall if you fall asleep while reading this book," <laughs> and that's what's happening all the time. Um, that's 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 a book I'm reading. I'm also listening to uh, um, World War Z. Uh, or World War Z, it's an American book. Uh, World War Z, uh, there's a movie uh, with Brad Pitt, which sucks. <laughs> it's, a, it's a fiction book of, made up of interviews of people who survived the zombie apocalypse, oh, nice. uh, the fictitious one. And the audiobook is so great because it's, every chapter is writ, read by a different uh, actor. So, um, the voice acting is, is more, is, is phenomenal. And it's like, you know, it's, 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 it's nonfiction in a fiction, fictitious world in a fictitious scenario. And it's the creepiest thing about it is how many parallels there are to the coronavirus. Oh, right. <laughs> right. I bet that one, you don't fall asleep to that easily. <laughs> All right. One other question. I, maybe you covered it already, but I'm going to put it back at you anyways, which is, um, you're in Berlin, a lot of great music here. I mean, it sounds like you like some podcasts as well. When you put the headphones on and tune out the world, what are you listening to? Um, I really enjoy uh, Vox Explained, uh, yeah. Today Explained. Um, I, I do like to uh, to listen to different worldviews. Like, I'm not going to read Ru listen to Russia Today or anything, but like, I, I listen to that a lot, which is quite a like liberal in the American sense of the word um, uh, podcast. But that, then I also listen, like to listen to exchanges at Goldman Sachs, mm -hmm. which is of course, you know, like turbo capitalism finance. <laughs> um, really enjoy these two. I listen to the Coindesk podcast, um, um, selectively of course, but um, I find that space very interesting. I'm not invested in crypto or, uh, or not a lot, but I'm not, but I find the find it very interesting. Still, still asking myself what the use case actually is. But <laughs> we haven't found it. Yet. We haven't found it yet. But you know, we're 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 early, but not wrong. Um, yeah. Blockchain, great. DeFi, TBD. Well, I, I I listen. I love the Duolingo podcasts actually. So this is the less serious. It's always about like Spanish, like trying to learn Spanish, not. Not very well, but I'm fine. Uh, I really like the podcast. I really like, you know, link languages in general. Like, um, so they have a new podcast that just came out yesterday uh, about um, how language shapes our world. So like more of a linguistics podcast. Love it. Um, it's, uh, it's one of my favorite topics as well. It isn't it, you know, I was reading this article not so long ago about, you know, bilingualism and trilingualism and how the neuronal pathways for children to learn multiple languages 
align with the same neural pathways to learn mathematics and science. Yeah. So you, people that are you know bilingual from a young age have a greater propensity to move into science and math. Yeah, yeah, no, I, again, I'm, thank you uh, to my parents for being that disciplined and, and giving me the gift of languages. So uh, that, that, that stuck with me. Um, yeah, I love the, the whole field of linguistics and uh, I hope to mass, like I hope to, to learn Spanish uh, more fluent and better and uh, finding the time. My girlfriend's Serbian, so uh, that, that's probably going to be the next one. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Wow. I don't know how your brain does that many. Yeah, it's, it's, um, uh, I'm sorry. I barely keep up with two. <laughs> and I don't know if I do either one of them that great. So. Uh, you've been fine. <laughs> Man. Um, oh, I guess I should probably give out a, a shout out to one other podcast that... Um, our mutual friend that brought us together to do this, Oliver Oust, who's been a guest on mine. You've been a guest on his. I've been a guest on his a couple times. So his Speak Like a CEO podcast. Um, it's uh, we try to share interesting conversations. And when he's yeah. like, I got a guy from Veho you really need to talk to. <laughs> um, so thanks, Oliver. You were bang on with this one. Um, thanks a lot, Oliver. Yeah, man. Great. Really, really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, got. Like, you know, I always tell people I can't think of anything more flowy than to just spend an hour with uh, a smart person just talking shop and talking life. And, bro, we've made it to an hour and a half. Oh, shit. <laughs> so well, well done. To anybody listening, sorry about that. <laughs> oh, I am, I am largely to blame because I didn't want it to end. But, Daniel, man, thanks again. It was great. Uh, hopefully we'll get a chance to continue these conversations. Absolutely. And, and best of luck on the the next phase of the refounder journey. Thanks. Glad to, uh, thanks for thanks for having me. Oh, shout out. Where can people find you that are interested in learning more about what you do? Um, so on LinkedIn, of course, uh, visit, visit our website wondertax.de, uh, uh, also in English, of course. Um, and yeah, please reach out if you have any questions. Um, I'm open to any mentoring, um, I love to, to give advice on, on certain topics. Uh, so I'm also going to have a few mentoring engagements now. Um, so please feel free if you to, to reach out on LinkedIn is best. Um, if you have any questions, happy to help uh, in the Vihau Alumni Network. Watch what you ask for, bro. The avalanche might be coming after your words <laughs> of wisdom. Yeah, thanks again, man. It was great having you. Thanks. Well, folks, that was Daniel Hanuman, founder and CEO of Wundertox. Stay tuned for more exciting episodes coming to you every two weeks. And as usual, if you enjoyed the show, please consider giving us a like, follow, or five-star review on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or your favorite podcast streaming service. If you didn't like it, just skip that part. <laughs> this makes the smile. <laughs>